Luke chapter 3, we'll be picking up in verse 21, going through, I believe, to the end of the chapter. We have a genealogy here, so brace for it. Um, It's uh, probably one of the longer ones. Um, It is delightful, though. Today we will see that as Luke has done quite regularly throughout the gospel in these first three chapters, he ping-pongs back and forth. He ping-pongs between narratives concerning John the Baptist and Jesus, and he very rarely intertwines them. Uh, He resets the narrative regularly like you'd reset your uh, NES back in the day. He resets it and starts again, and that's what we see here. You see that though John baptizes the Lord Jesus Christ, John, in the previous verse, is in prison. He resets the narrative because he wants to keep them separate in order to isolate each person in their work in the kingdom. And so last week we saw John baptizing. This week we see Jesus baptized. And so will you stand with me as we hear the word of God in Luke chapter 3, picking up in verse 21. And now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form, like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jani, and the son of Joseph, the son of Matthias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Elth, Esli and the son of Nagai, the son of Maoth and the son of Matthias, the son of Simeon and the son of Jasek and the son of Jodah, the son of Jonan, the son of Risa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi and the son of Adai, the son of Kosen and the son of El Madam and the son of Ur, the son of Joseph, the son of Eliezer, the son of Joram, the son of Mathot, and the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, and the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, and the son of Jonan, the son of Eliakim, the son of Mileah, the son of Mena, the son of Matthiatha, the son of Nathan, and the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Selah, the son of Nashan, the son of Aminadab, the son of Admin, and the son of Arni, the son of Hezron, and the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, and the son of Nahor, and the son of Serug, and the son of Rayu, the son of Peleg, and the son of Eber, and the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, and the son of Arphaxadad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, and the son of Mahalalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Here ends our gospel lesson, and this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I am a, a, big, fan, a big fan of fountain pens. I carry one with me all the time of varying value. This is my everyday one that I would even let my own child use, though he often gets ink on him. Uh, I love fountain pens. Uh, you knew that perhaps a few weeks ago and during the worship service, my hands were covered in green ink. And I'm sure none of you heard my sermon that Sunday because no matter how often I cleaned my hands, I touched my paper. And my paper was filled with Emerald de Javor. 
and that is not a good ink to use in everyday writing that you tend to handle with. Perhaps you'll get a letter from me with that ink on it, and I'm, I instruct you now, hold it by the corners, because it's never truly dry, as you've seen in my own life. I love fountain pens, but fountain pens, they tend to vary in uniqueness. You can buy a fountain pen for $5 that you just throw away at the end of it, or you could buy a fountain pen for $50,000. And you might think, I don't own any $50,000 pens, don't you worry, that's not where I put my stock in. Uh, but you wonder, why on earth would anyone buy a $50,000 fountain pen? And it's because it's a one-of-the-kind fountain pen. It's on there on the cap, it will say 01 backslash 01. It's the only one made by that person. And because of its uniqueness, because it's the only one exi that exists, it shoots up in price. remember looking at some pens a few years ago that were honoring all the space launches, the anniversary of NASA and its work, and you could buy a set that would just anchor to your table, a magnificent piece with three fountain pens representing each of the three first sh aircrafts that we shot into orbit, and that was $27,000. I, I assure you I did not even broach my wife of spending such, but it was a unique set. It was a unique set. What we have today in the Gospel of John is a unique baptism. It is one of the kind. It is 01 of 01. There is nothing like it because it is the baptism of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is like a $50,000 fountain pen. There's only one like it. And so we are going to focus today on the uniqueness of the baptism of Jesus Christ. And I use that word unique in its real meaning. It is truly one of a kind. Is not how you'd perhaps say my child is unique. No, this is a one-of-a-kind experience. It is totally unique. Though we hear that John was imprisoned in verse 20, we also know that he is the one that baptized Jesus. In Matthew chapter 3, it says, And Jesus came from Galilee to the, John, the, to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. So though, that, uh, though John might seem to be out of the picture here, we know that John is the one that baptized Jesus. You don't have to do all sorts of weird gymnastics to figure that. You just have to know how Luke writes. We're reminded when Mary was staying with Elizabeth that she appears to leave before Jesus is born, but we know that she was there. In the same way, in this chapter, one chapter later, Luke does the same thing. Though John seems out of the picture, Luke resets the narrative. John baptizes the Christ. And why I bring that up is because what was John's baptism? We heard last week it was a baptism for repentance of sins, of turning away from our own sin and turning to God and clinging to his holiness. That's what John's baptism represented. And since John's baptism represented that, you might have the common question. Well, why on earth would John then baptize Jesus? We see this, this tension in Matthew's own gospel when John himself says, you should be the one baptizing me. But why does John baptize Jesus? That's the question we're going to answer today. Why does John baptize Jesus? It's such a question. A good question. And we learn that John baptizes Jesus for your salvation. That's why John baptizes Jesus. He baptizes Jesus for your salvation. 
And it's for three very simple points. They're not going to be all drawn from the text simply, but we'll see them in the idea. Why does John baptize Jesus for your salvation? Well, first it's because it points to his death. Jesus' baptism points to his death. After all the people were baptized, then Jesus is baptized. We have to have a deeper understanding of what baptism is. In our own evangelical culture, baptism is merely joining the church, as it were, perhaps in our Baptist circles. But what is baptism? How does the Scripture understand baptism, this sacred rite of the church? As we see and hear, heard the confirmation of that work in the professions here today, what is baptism? Well, baptism is both positive and negative in the Scriptures. It is positive, as we are reminded in our catechism, it points towards new life. Those who are cleansed, washed, you think of the, the great image of being buried with Christ and then raised again with Him. It is a positive thing in Scriptures, but it is also a negative thing. The images throughout the Scriptures of baptism, there are usually positives wedded with negatives. We think of perhaps Noah and the flood. Noah, as he is told by God, build an ark, for I will, as the Septuagint says, I will baptize, baptizo the earth. I will baptize the earth. I will cleanse the earth. I will redeem the earth. And the only way Noah is spared of the curse of baptism is through the ark. Think of the ark of, that is and would be Christ himself. It's positive and negative. The earth is not only baptized at that moment. You think of Abraham all those centuries later after Noah as he is led out of the land of bondage. He is led through. He leads the people through the, the river. And the river parts ways and they pass on dry land and are safe. They, as they are baptized through the water, they come out alive. But what happens to those pesky Egyptians? Well, they are baptized as well. They are baptized with the judgment and wrath of God as they look upon their own God as the sun rises. They drown by baptism. Baptism is both positive and negative, and it is important to know that negative aspect of it when we look at the baptism of Jesus Christ himself. You are all very well acquainted with the positive and joyful nature of baptism. I'm sure. But when we look at the baptism of Christ, we see those curses that I just referenced. We see the curses. It points to the death of Christ himself. That's why Jesus was baptized. It is pointing beyond mere salvation for himself. It is pointing to his own death. Everything is done in light of that judgment. And so his baptism is greater than mere cleansing. It's not pointing to that. Jesus is perfectly clean. He is perfect. What he do does in his baptism is he is pointing to when we are washed, we are washed by him. And that washing comes through his own death. My favorite Baptist becoming a Presbyterian story is not our own brother Larry, uh, but my friend Paul at Reform Seminary. Uh, he was from Moldova. He went back, I believe, and is planning a Presbyterian church there now, praise the Lord. Uh, and I remember he was a longtime Baptist. His father was a Baptist. I think they all became Presbyterians in due time. Uh, Ligon Duncan's Covenant Theology class will do that to you. It'll make a Presbyterian out of you. Uh, he always lamented, Ligon, that I want my Baptist brothers to go back and remain Baptist because they need to have good theology too. 
And so he joyed when Baptists would become Presbyterians. But I remember when my friend Paul, I was in the, the library, a, a quiet place typically, but Paul is from Moldova, and all of his Moldovan love and excitement and jovialness came forward as I heard him down the halls. It almost sounded like Augustine or Christian from Pilgrim's Progress saying, life, life, eternal life. And what I heard him chanting in those halls was, baptism always works. He would run up to me, and though it would be too close for my comfort, he would pick me up, and he would say, Scott, I'm a Presbyterian. Baptism always works. And I say, I tap his back, yes, Paul, it always works. And what did he mean? He was pointing to this idea here. Baptism always works. It either seals salvation for those who have received it or it seals judgment. It's the double edge of it. There's a great joy when you are baptized in the church, but there's also a warning. Do not forsake your baptism. For you then would be like the Egyptians or like the people of Noah's age. And so Jesus is baptized. He is baptized in light of those curses that in his baptism, it points to his death. Sometimes we can mistake that our baptism, when we receive it, that the grace found within it is at the time that we receive it. I remember that this is sometimes a sticking point for our Baptist brothers and sisters is sometimes difficult that when you receive baptism, you receive grace. But we are reminded here today as we've received members, these texts line up so well that the, the work of baptism is not just merely at the point that you receive the water, but it goes on very long in time. It goes on even today. And so today I call you, as I call those who have professed faith, to remember your baptism. To remember that when you are baptized, you are baptized in the death of Christ. And when you are baptized, you are baptized in that resurrection as well. Jesus was baptized for you. And you need to remember, you need to remember that you are called to grow in grace. Our larger catechism says that you are to remember this. That you are to remember to be humbled. That you are to remember to grow in assurance. That you are to continue to mortify your sins by the powers of Christ. And you are to continue in grace. The ordinary means of grace are the word, the sacraments, and prayer. And you might think that once you receive baptism, there's no more grace to receive, but there is. Remember the baptism of Christ. Though he'd be baptized at 30, it would be three years before he would receive the curses of that baptism on the cross. And the good news for you today is that's not what is promised for you as you profess. What are you promised? You are promised those great rewards of salvation. You are promised the ark that will save you from death. You are promised the dry land that will save you from drowning. You are promised life in Christ. And so Jesus was baptized for you because it points to his own death. He takes upon those curses that otherwise you would have on yourself. But the next thing it does, and this is the meat of the passage is that it proclaims his status. What else does the baptism of Christ, what, is, uh, what else does it do? It proclaims his status. Look down at the second half of verse 21. When Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. 
though Luke doesn't focus on the baptism of Christ as much as perhaps John or, or as, much, as perhaps much as Matthew, we see what the baptism looks forward to. After Jesus baptized, is baptized, what does he do? He prays. And what happens when he prays? The heavens are opened. It's an interesting thing. In light of John's preaching, this must have been a terrifying experience. The heavens being opened is an apocalyptic event. It is an earth-ending type of event. And they had just heard the preaching of John, the preaching that perhaps you heard last week. Repent, you brood of vipers. Though you are coming here to be baptized, repent or perish. This land will lie a desolate waste unless you repent. And then Jesus is baptized and the heavens open. Think of the terrifying nature. After John says, repent or die, now the heavens are open. We must be being prepared for death. In his baptism, we are ready to die. It was a jarring experience, but instead of fire and brimstone raining from heaven, what comes? The Holy Spirit descends upon him like a dove. What a contrast. They expect fire and flame from heaven because of the preaching of John and what do they receive? They receive a dove. I don't know why it is that the Spirit is compared to a dove here. I've read way too much on it this week, and I'm still inconclusive. You may have a better answer, a more sure answer. The dove, obviously, being an emblem of Noah's time with the bird going out. A dove symbolizing peace and serenity of grace. I don't know what the dove represents, but it's the image of Scripture for what the Spirit does. And what does the Spirit do after the Lord Jesus prays? He prays to receive the Spirit, to empower Him in His ministry. What does the Spirit do? It doesn't, he doesn't go inside the Lord. He rests. He rests on the Lord to prepare Him for ministry. He rests. He rests. As you expect the heavens to rip the world apart asunder, the Spirit calmly rests upon Jesus. This is a reminder from Isaiah 11, which says, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, and the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, and the Spirit of counsel and might, and the Spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord will rest upon him. That is what Jesus receives at his baptism. He receives the power to endure. He receives the good news heralded from the Spirit himself, of the Father himself, to press on in his ministry. He receives power. Some preachers would say that the Spirit is the dynamite, the dynamo, as the Greek language would say. He's a dynamite of the Godhead. The power. He encourages the humanity of Christ to press on to the end. That's what Jesus prays for. He wonders, perhaps in his own humanity, can I do this task? He prays, Spirit be with me. And the Spirit comes to be with him. And we see not only the Spirit coming to be with him, we see that the Father has a declaration as well. What does the Father say? You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Just last chapter we heard Jesus say, I am in my Father's house. The first words in the Gospel of Luke we hear from Jesus Christ are, I am in my Father's house. And the first words we hear from the Father are, this is my beloved Son. You see the mutual interplay here. 
You see the whole Godhead in these first three person, uh, the, these first three chapters, all within these first few verses here. The Son, the Spirit, the Father. And the Father's declaration is, you are my beloved Son. Why is this so important? Why does Luke include this right here? It's because his role, his status, his sonship will be questioned. It'll be questioned in the very next verse. As Jesus is led by that same spirit into the wilderness, Satan will question his sonship. That's why it's here. I am declaring to you like I declare to Adam, you are my son. You are my child. Jesus' sonship, though, is not exclusive to him. He doesn't hoard it to himself. He shares it with the church. One of the great works of coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is that we are adopted. The confession of faith is the first confession ever written to have a chapter on, of adoption. And what is the work of adoption? It is that God adopts us as his own children. We become blood of his blood and flesh of his flesh. We are adopted into his home. We become his. And that spirit of adoption is found in the sonship of Christ. When we look to Christ, we see our elder brother, the one whom we want to learn from, the one whom we learn the rules of the house from. See it in my own house. For better and worse, our youngest always looks up to the oldest. It is particularly bad when our oldest looks down to the youngest for advice, but it sometimes happens. But it's not in this relationship. The Lord is our elder brother, and he leads us well. He teaches us the rules of the house. He teaches us to become holy, for he is holy. He teaches us the life as adopted children, of flesh of his flesh and blood of his blood. We are new creations. That status that the Lord Jesus Christ receives or is declared here in this passage is extended to you. We are reminded in 1 Corinthians, uh, quite contrasted by what we were just reading, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And you all know the next line. And such were some of you. But you have a new status. You have a new status, and that status is engrafted into Christ. By his baptism, you are baptized into the family of God. And you yourself share in that status. You share in that victory when you are down. You share in that grace when you seem defeated. So we see that Jesus was baptized for your salvation. It points to his death. It points to his status. And lastly, what I want you to see is that also presumes his lineage. I will, I'll, I'll, I'll spare myself and you reading through that lineage again. I, I think I only had one major faux pas in that entire reading. I've been practicing that more than my sermon this week. Important. And, and the worst part about that is that I'm sure all of your eyes just rolled to the back of your head as the moment I started reading the son of. My favorite son in that entire uh, uh, passage was the one that I actually messed up. Arphexadad. I just love the name. I decided to look up after reading that name and mispronouncing it ten times who it was, and there's no information about that guy. He's a nobody. 
And I think that's the point of Luke's lineage. There's a bunch of nobodies. I slowed down to read the somebodies, but there were very few. For every somebody, there were 10 nobodies, it seemed, as I read that passage. People that you could look in your greatest concordance, and this is the only time in all of Scripture that they are ever referenced. You know nothing about them. The best is somebody can piece together what their Hebrews' names meant. And even that is shoddy. This is a list that shows us the lineage of Christ. I could get into the debate, perhaps, of whose lineage was this? So you could debate, was this Joseph's line, legal, yada, yada, yada. We're just going to settle that this is Mary's line. And you see, it, it was quite popular at this time. If Mary was the only daughter or there were no sons in her line, typically what would happen is that the father in that household will also adopt the son-in-law because somebody had to inherit the father's house. And so likely what happened was Mary was the, the, maybe the only daughter, the first daughter of her parents. They had no sons. And so what did they do? They adopted Joseph to be their own son in order to inherit the family. And so that's why it says there in that passage, as presumed, because Jesus obviously not being biologically related to Joseph, he was adopted into the family excuse me, therein. And so we see Mary's humble line. I think this line reveals to us the lowliness of Jesus. That's why it is presumed here by Luke. Luke has been showing us the lowliness of Mary, the lowliness of Christ, the lowliness of the family. In Matthew, you can see uh, uh, Joseph's true line, the royal line, with all of the great kings therein, where if you look up those names in your lexicon, you will find all sorts of references throughout all of Scripture. But instead, Luke goes for the low route goes for the humble route to show the lowliness of our Savior. It's a genealogy of nobodies. Sometimes when we're reading genealogies or we're thinking about history, we can sometimes be discouraged, and especially when we live in our own time. We forget that we will be a part of a genealogy. Someday we will be a part of a, a long list of names that people will only know by the name itself and the stories associated therein. We might forget that the Lord is working now in history in his church through our present lineage. I was reading one commentator who said it's sometimes difficult to remember that God's plans are working in our present distress and difficulty. But I'm sure Mel Kai, Dad, and those like them did not think in their lives, I have a role to play in redemption. And the difficulty of their lives and the lowliness perhaps they're in, they were not thinking that I will be in the Bible. <laughs> that I will be referenced a part of the holy line of the one who would die to bring salvation to everyone. A bunch of lowly people that you don't even know the names of. People that after they died, they thought they would be forgotten and forgotten quickly. That's the lineage of the Lord. And you are engrafted into that lowly lineage. Your name is written in the book of life as you profess Christ truly. And you are extending this here genealogy. Your name is being written the son of, the son of, the son of. The son of Scott. The son of Edberg. Long forgotten. Who was that guy? Can't find him anywhere. The Lord uses a lowly people. And maybe today, 
you feel and believe that you are a lowly person. Well, there is good news. There are many Malchis, many Zerubbabels, many others in this genealogy that we know very little about, but yet the Lord uses for redemption. Well, we can't ignore the greats in this list. We do have some greats, and we have to reference them. We see that David himself is, is, is lined here. David, Abraham, and Adam himself. In Matthew's lineage, he stops fairly early. But here we see, and why it's much longer, is it goes all the way back. We see all the way back to Adam himself. We see two things. We see that Jesus is connected even in his humility to David himself and the perhaps lowliness of David being the youngest of his brothers, the least fit to be king over all of Israel. You remember when the prophet was visiting uh, the house of David, they went through all the sons, all of these great-looking, mighty men, and then they come to Scott Edberg, the least of these. And what does the Lord do? He says, this is my guy. The guy that doesn't look like a king. The guy that doesn't look like he could lead God's people. The guy that doesn't look like he could be a one to kill a giant in battle. The least of these. We see that the lineage of David is low. And so, perhaps Jesus himself is low as well. But we also see the connection to Adam. Jesus' lineage doesn't stop at David. It doesn't even stop at Abraham. It goes all the way back to Adam, the one who would be the first representative of all mankind. This is so important in Luke's genealogy because of the passage that comes right after it. You see, Matthew starts his gospel with the genealogy. You can get it out of the way really quick. You can do, a pastor can do an introductory sermon and he can skim through all of the genealogy and not really touch any of it. I would have delighted to do so. Instead, I hooked it onto his baptism. We're going to spend some time there. But why does Luke put the genealogy between his baptism and his temptation? It is because it is to inform both. It is to inform his humanity as he takes on the sins of the world through his baptism, that he was truly man. But even greater, it's that passage that comes right after this. Jesus himself is led to the wilderness. I don't want to spoil next week's sermon, but Luke chapter 4 is one of my favorite passages in the Gospel of Luke. And we see that Jesus, the second Adam, can do what the first Adam failed to do. This passage connects Jesus to all humanity. He becomes representative for all humanity. And those who have faith in him receive the great rewards and riches found in it. Jesus connected to all humanity. We see even, perhaps ironically, that Jesus is the Son of God in this genealogy. Have you had doubts when the Father from the heavens said, this is my son, well, my son, my beloved son? Well, the genealogy goes right after and shows, this is my son. One commentator, John Gardner, said, history never looks like history when you're living through it. But it always looks confusing and messy, and it always feels uncomfortable. But may the, the disappointments and the difficulties of this life, may you remember your lineage. Your lineage is engrafted into the lineage of Christ himself. Not going merely to Jesus, but going beyond Jesus. Looking at salvation in its total picture. It is connected to David. It is connected to Abraham. It is connected to Adam. And it is connected to God himself. In the lineage of Christ, you find your lineage. 
Sometimes we can be so enamored with the Old Testament people of God, we can isolate them as an independent people. But when you are baptized in the Lord Jesus Christ, they become your people. I'm often, as we will study under Mitchell in a few months here, in Exodus, those stiff-necked Israelites, as they receive the law, they throw it off so quickly. I often viewed them with such a condescending tone. If I were those Israelites, I would be so much better. But those are my people. It's not them. It's us. We are engrafted into this lineage. And that's why Jesus is baptized. It is to point to his death. It is to proclaim his status. And it is to presume his lineage. And today we presume that lineage probably most poignantly by the covenant meal that we take today. Today we have a meal and table set before us by our elder brother, our Jesus Christ, who died for us that we might have life in him. And all of those who profess, whether that be today or 40, 50, 60 years ago, all those who profess are welcome to this table that he has prepared for you. He was baptized for you. He was baptized and died that you might have salvation in him. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart, but call upon the one that truly lives. Let us close in prayer. Pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you, O Lord, for your grace and mercy, that we are engrafted into the Son of God as sons of God, and that today, as we even receive new members who will partake of the first time, we know that there is something ordinary about these ordinary means, and we thank you for them. May we continue to grow in grace as we call upon the Son who died for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.